So we we walked out of that auction for with a 28 unit property, a uh, 16 unit property that we bid on later for like two grand oh my God. in a commercial lot, none of which we'd ever seen. We have no idea where they are. And so you just go and you peel off $100 bills and you put a stack of $100 bills there and they give you deeds. We literally drove to what we had bought. And so it's like just a horrible movie of every you know wrong turn. And then you're like, you convince yourself, you're like, I can we can make this work, man, hopefully I don't have to turn left up there. And sure enough, it's like you turn left and then, and then it's like, okay, I can, okay, okay, this is scary, but I, we can make this work as long as it's not, you know, a right, every wrong turn. And then all of a sudden you just pull up and you're like that sinking feeling of like, what have we done? What have we done? I love this company, not just because of what they do, but two of my best friends run it, Nick Huber and Mitchell Baldridge. It's called Ari Koseg, and they have a singular mission to help real estate investors spend less money on taxes. If you're an investor, a broker, or a property owner, listen up. This is crucial information. A cost segregation study can help you unlock the hidden value in your property by enabling you to write off components of your building faster. This means you'll pay less in taxes and have more cash in your pocket to reinvest or distribute to your investors. The team at RE Koseg are experts in this highly specialized field. They only use engineers to perform their studies, and they use the highest industry standards for their reports. Over the past year, they've completed over 600 Koseg studies and have saved their clients more than $65 million in taxes. For smaller properties, they do site visits fully virtually which makes it extremely fast and easy to get your cost seg completed. They also have an experienced team for larger in-person site visits. Big or small, they make it extremely quick and easy. And the best part, their initial analysis is absolutely free. They'll examine your property and show you how much you could be saving. Visit recostseg, that's R-E-C-O-S-T-S-E-G.com. One of my favorite things to do is raise capital always been something I love doing. I love putting together deals. But one thing that is always tough for me is putting together the actual pitch deck, which is really important when you're raising capital. Or whether it's a corporate overview or a track record deck or investor reporting collateral, but putting together any kind of deck for guys like me has always just been tough. And so finding a company that could do it and not only do it, but blow your mind and make some of the best pitch decks you've ever seen was really cool. Enter Better Pitch. Better Pitch has taken the lead and is making some of the best pitch books I've ever seen. And if you think that not having a great pitch book is important when either raising capital, showing off your company, showing off your track record, showing off to investors, you're mistaken. I think your pitch book is one of the most important pieces of collateral that you could have. So I highly recommend checking out Better Pitch. They have an incredible team. They will work with you. And if you're a Fort listener and you tell them that, they will work with you on as many revisions as you need until you're 100% satisfied. So go check them out. One of the great joys of my life has been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get at investing. 
We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you want to know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com, where we talk about why we've been investing in Class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals, more about our technology and, and how we think about it. You can see job openings. Highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to fortcapitallp.com. You bought 44 units for like 12 grand, not per unit, right? But 12 grand. Yeah, it's a crazy story. I've told it a few times. People at, at Nightvest have heard it pretty much at every annual event of <laughs> how did we get started? Yep. And so I was about 30 years old, just got laid off at a real estate private equity firm. This is in 2008. Eight, so it's not a, not a great time, and really people people forget. Like I didn't have options, yeah. And it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to apply here, apply here. I'm going to get another job. I mean, it was really tough for a basically real estate quote unquote professional that didn't have an expertise. So it was pretty tough. So I met a friend of mine and another friend, and we were basically unemployed real estate guys, and we probably officed in a room this side, this size, and and we went in every day and honestly had no idea what to do. No <laughs> idea. And so we thought, let's start buying properties at a tax foreclosure sale. First Tuesday of the month, you go down the courthouse steps, you have cash, literally had cash in our boot. And so we were going to buy single family homes. So we were going to flip single family homes. So I was at the still am married, but married with two little kids, no money is an interesting way to to, yeah. to go through your your professional life. So we cashed in our 401ks and we had, it was three of us. And so I think we probably had, I don't know, 40 or 50 grand that we scratched together, literally in cash. So we were buying single family homes, very frustrated. We'd bought one. We were terrible at renovating. I remember the first one we bought for, for $44,000. <laughs> one home. One home. And, uh, Renovated that one. And then we were at an auction. This is, a, I think it was July of 08. So we bought a few homes. So Nightvest was technically in business before because we owned some single family homes. So at an auction in, in, in July of 08, and we had targeted some single family homes that we were going to buy. Well, those, for whatever reason, went too high or it's kind of frustrating or they didn't make it to the sale. And the constable comes up and he says, I have a 28 unit property. And all I know is there is a structure on it and people are living there. And so I'm not really paying attention. It's, there's probably 100 people in the room, not really paying attention. And because uh, we, we, we actually had never seen this deal. We never have done anything in multifamily. This was horrifying. This is a story, not a, not a what to do to how to get started. Uh, it's just a story that happens to be true. But and so is on the tax rolls, the way these tax foreclosures work is the opening bid is the, is whatever the, the it's on for the tax roll. So it's 488000 So 488000 he's like, we're going to start the bid there. No one bids. And then with no emotion, nothing, he says, open bidding. No idea what that means, except a guy in the front row raises his hand and says $100. <laughs> and 
So it, my original business partner was Casey Cromback, who's a great guy. Talk to him all the time. Uh, still great friends today. But he is more of a risk taker than I am. Yeah. So he's more, and we're both entrepreneurial, but he's really entrepreneurial. You know, come to, you kind of find out your lane once you get going. And I'm more uh, operating, you know, mindset. Yeah. And uh, I am certain it was him. And he raised his hand and said, $200. <laughs> and so, so anyway, we got carried away. I don't know if anyone's been to an auction, but it's, you know, $400, $500, 2000 2500 So it's 28 units. And so we walked out of there. And I remember the person in front of me turned around and was like, do you guys know what you're bidding on? And I was, I don't, I don't know if it was me or, or as the guy's giving advice to stop bidding, it was like, 10,000, yeah. you know, so kind of a jerk. But anyway, so we, we walked out of that auction for with a 28-unit property, a 16-unit uh, property that we bid on later for like two grand oh my God. in a commercial lot, none of which we'd ever seen. We have no idea where they are. And so you just go and you peel off $100 bills and you <laughs> put a stack of $100 bills there and they give you deeds. Yeah. And they give you a piece of paper. I don't know what the piece of paper said. And so we leave that auction. So we were, there were three partners at the time. And our third partner was like, you guys are crazy. I'm out. I'm not. I mean, keep in mind, our partnership's pretty loose. But yeah. he's like, <laughs> I don't want anything to do with apartments. You know nothing about apartments. And I'm out. And so I was like, well, I guess it's just so Casey and I went to lunch. And we're like, I guess it's just you and me. <laughs> and so after lunch, we literally drove to what we had bought. And so it's like just a horrible movie of every, you know, wrong turn. And then you're like, you convince yourself, you're like, I can, we can make this work. Man, hopefully I don't have to turn left up there. And sure enough, it's like you turn left. And then, <laughs> and then it's like, okay, I can, okay, okay, this is scary, but I, we can make this work as long as it's not, you know, a right, every wrong turn. And then all of a sudden you just pull up and you're like that sinking feeling of like, what have we done? What have we done? We show up and we know we have nothing. We so yellow tablet. We're like, well, let's start at apartment 101. So we that's how we started. So we went and knocked on 101, opened the door, and we're like, I'm David. This is Casey. We're your new landlord. And what's your name? How long you've been here? And what do you pay? And it's just that's how we started. And really went down there every day. I think we didn't have having no money, which means we didn't have a, a, a huge burn as far as monthly in monthly obligations and we had no job so we literally went down there every day we went down there every day we collected rent we took you know i carried the the leasing phone the leasing sign i carried that for a while until i could find someone else to carry that phone i mean we tried to fix things best we could i mean it was it was really sad so people would say hey i don't have uh, my refrigerator doesn't work it's like okay which is now you can't do, and I didn't even know fair housing, but we're like, okay, refrigerator is a is a need that you need today. We won't get you a new one because we don't have the money for it, but let us get you a working refrigerator. They're like, sweet. So we get a refrigerator. Now, next guy is like, man, my, my carpet is just terrible. And you look in, you're like, wow, that, that's like the original carpet on earth. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so we're like, okay, you pay pay a month rent and we'll, we'll trade your carpet in. You know, trade, trade your carpet out and get you a new carpet. It's like, okay, cool. So we really just started caring a little bit. You can't care too much because then you'll get taken advantage of. But, you know, we wanted to treat people well. We wanted to put them in a, you know, provide a better housing situation 
than they were currently in. And that's really how we started. And a lot of the, the philosophy that we did at that day, we, we still do today. And it's really, it's, it's a really, really, you know, simple business that's hard to do because yeah. you have to do the same thing every day, yeah. but treat people well, care about people, try and enhance their, their living condition. And that's really what we did then. It's what we do today. Were y'all night vest at the time? Did we were night any, vest. What is night vest? So night vest is totally made up. Okay. Um, so we were, so we were originally, I think, Kensington Capital okay. and someone had a similar name. Yeah. And so we had the logo, which is a K. So we yeah. needed a name with a K that we could get the domain name. Yeah. And so Night Vest is where it came. And it's, I mean, we, you know, it's kind of like night, we are protect of your investment, Night sure. Vest. But it's really because we could find, you know, Apple.com was taken. So right. we went Night Vest. All right. So you buy the 44 units, two properties, 12 grand. You got a company name. You probably have some business cards, a tiny office. Was it immediate or not immediate, but like in that first deal, was it like, okay, we're going to do apartments? Did you keep no. trying to do other stuff or were you uh, just laser focused on apartments? So that's, that's a good question. I, I think after we bought those first two apartments, we then immediately bought two more yep. apartments from someone else that had bought. It was a, it was a firefighter that bought two properties at that auction that was in the same area. So this yep. was seized property from the city of Dallas by just a true slumlord. Okay. And so he was a firefighter and he he was like, holy smokes, I had I had no idea what really I was getting into. And we're like, hey, we'll I think he paid like five grand and you know, I don't remember the details exactly, but we'll pay you 10 grand and we'll take those. So we soon had four properties in walking distance. And really after that it it's I think it was 72 units, maybe four properties. That's a full-time job if you have no help. And so we did that, went down there every day and we were off and running. And then, and then realized that, you know, really like, you know, feel like there's a, there's a need of providing better housing and people appreciate that and, and they're, you know, they'll pay rent and it's a viable business. So I think from really from pretty close to day one, we realized that, this is what, what we want to do. We didn't know how to do it. We didn't know how we we're going to make a living doing it. But I think we, you know, quickly were trying to figure that out. So from that day forward, y'all were property managers. Did you ever not property manage? No, we had no money. Okay, so property no... ma- property management was the thing. Yeah. And so, so the scary thing is like, and honestly, had no idea what we were supposed to do. But we knew that everyone likes clean, so we would clean twice a day. So you clean in the morning, clean in the afternoon. I mean. It's little, I mean, every, everyone wants a refrigerator that works. Yep. I mean, so it's, it's not like it's rocket science, what we do. You, it's hard work and you yep. got to do it again the next day and you got to look the other way when they, you know, you clean it up at, at five o'clock and you come back at, you know, nine in the morning and property's totally trashed again. Yep. You're like, what? Clean it again. Yeah. Clean it again. Clean it again. It's so funny you say that when I owned, uh, properties at TCU, I had no money either and didn't really understand property management like rules and regulations. And most students would move out and they would just leave the couches like they would just leave their life. And so they move out late. I have like parents moving in two weeks later. I go into the house. 
I collect everything in a U-Haul and then I pull up to the dump and realize it's like a five or six hundred dollar fee to dump it all. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I don't have that. <laughs> so I pull around. I find this dumpster that I think is hidden and like stack couches and all this stuff by this dumpster. Well, then I guess I sent a letter to the tenants. It was like I was going to charge for moving all their stuff from them. And I'll never forget, like one of the parents, I guess, was like driving by this grocery store where I had put all this stuff and like took a picture of <laughs> all these couches stacked. She's like, like, that's my couch. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> I was like, I knew nothing about property management. Yeah. And that's when I learned really quickly, like you kind of have to play by the rules a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, you do. I, I've got a uh, I, I tell a funny story. You know, we were trying to do it differently. So our first real deal with outside money was in 2009. Okay. And so crazy story. I may just tell it. So we realized that we needed to raise money to do bigger deals. I mean, and I have a finance background as in real estate. I mean, I, I understand the numbers that we need bigger numbers to make a living. Yeah. Just simple as that. <laughs> so we, we put under contract a 300 unit property. In, uh, so we're ready. I mean, we're, we got 77 done. Let's so go. let's do 300. And the broker wouldn't, is a good friend of mine, yeah. Taylor Snowdy, who's probably one of the top brokers in for sure, DFW, if not America. But he was young then. I was young then or younger. And he really wouldn't even give us the time of day because we're like, hey, we've got this. We've got 77 units. I mean, we're ready. And he, I'm sure he was like, this is a $2.8 million deal. For 300. For 300 units. Yeah. And we're like, awesome. And he's like, I don't know if they're going to award it to you. And I, I remember saying, and this is, again, a story. It's not what we do today. So I'm sure investors are like, man, this guy is reckless. But <laughs> we said, we will sign, we'll put 50 grand firm, which is literally all our money, day one, and we will sign the contract as is. Send it. Send it. They sent the contract, did not read it, did not read it, did not have an attorney, did not read the contract, signed it, sent it back, sent our money to the title company. I remember calling Casey and I was like, do you know anyone with money? Yeah. It literally is like, not really. And so we finally got that one done. It's a pretty crazy story. My college roommate would, had made some money in, in oil and gas. And, and my pitch to him is like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not a dummy. You know, I'll work really hard and you know, I won't cheat you. Yeah. And I was like, I, we may make money, <laughs> but you know, you know, those streams, right? He's like, I bet, I'm sure he was like, that's a terrible pitch. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, that's what I got. So, so he did some, some money and we ended up cobbling it together, but we needed an extension because we couldn't get it done. The bank banking was crazy. We had no credit. We had to get a, someone to sign on the loan, you know, stuff that that's how you get started. And so we couldn't hit the closing date and the, and the, the seller was like, you need, you know, I'm not going to give you more time unless you put up like 20 grand. I was like, okay. So we were going home. We had like our island kitchen countertop and we were, my wife and I were literally pulling out credit cards, wow. calling to see what cash advance we could get. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and my wife's like very conservative. Like yeah. I'm sure she was like, what have I done? <laughs> and so anyway, we, I finally, I, she called American Express and you get two grand there, but you have to go in person. And, you know, so Casey was probably doing the same. We're trying to get it. So finally I was like, put it, put your, put all the stuff up. This is nuts. So I called the seller. And I'm like, listen, you have my money. I have no more money, but I think we can get it done. I need two weeks. And, uh, he's, he's like, good. 
Okay, let's do it. So we that's how that's really the first real deal with outside money, 300 units. And then Casey and I went down there every day and we officed on site. We officed on site. We kicked the manager out front and we would we could went to the manager office. Whoever got there first got the good seat on the desk. And whoever got there last sat in like a fold-up chair and laptops and grind. And so it was just the two of y'all and you ran that one too. Yeah. So we did that one. Okay. Yeah. And, all right. So you go from 77 to 300. Yeah. I probably heard about y'all and this was, so 2009 is when you bought the 300. Yeah. I probably started hearing about you from our friend Ty Smith and yeah. a couple guys around town. They're yeah. like, there's these two guys out of Dallas. They're just buying all these apartments. I remember that y'all were paying like 40 grand a door yeah. for some stuff here. And everybody's like, man, that's I too much. That, You're crazy. I, I think that <laughs> traded to like 200 grand yeah. a door not Ex- too long ago. Exactly. So, I guess the bridge from like, when did the company start building? Yeah. So bought a deal in, in 09 and we officed on site. Then we bought a, you know, I think four or five deals in 2010. And then we would spend the morning in one property and we'd spend the afternoon. I'm sure the managers were like, you know, yeah. these ding dongs just left my property here. Here they come, you yeah. know? And so then we would split up. We had too many, so it was like Casey, you go here and here in the morning and afternoon. I'm going to hit these two today, and then all of a sudden, you know, but really probably 2012 before we were like, wow, we we have like something, yeah. you know. And so I remember we sold our first deal in 2012, and so and we hired our chief investment officer that's still with us today. Really smart guy, awesome guy. And we told him, we hired him in, in 2012, and we told him, we're like, you know, we've never made money in a real estate deal. And he, <laughs> he was like, again, like, who are these people? And so we sold our first deal in 2012, Okay. and I paid off $100,000 of credit card debt. I yeah. paid off my MBA loan. I had another personal loan, and I had, I owed taxes. The problem with with acquisition fees is you pay ordinary income and then yeah. every investor is like, well, well, you have to put the, you have to put the acquisition fee in the deal as your co-invest. I'm like, okay, well, it creates a tax problem, yeah. which I didn't understand until it comes. I don't have the money. So 2012, I'm basically dead broke, but it's a celebration day. But you're even again. I'm even, yeah. I'm even. <laughs> and so I think by then we'd had 10, I don't know, 10 or 12 deals. Yeah. And have some income going in, I can pay, you know, pay myself enough to survive. Yep. And that's when it's like, we've got a company. What do you want to do with it? That's awesome. And so we were like, we probably should stop officing on site. You know, it's kind of a great way to start, but you know, investors are like, do you, you know, do you have any money? <laughs> you know, like, no, we just have time and right and reputation. Right. Right. It's all on the line. Yeah. And so our, our deal was we're willing to do work that other people are not. We, we learned the business the right way because we had time and no money. And so after we'd been on site for three plus years, we're like, let's go get an office. Let's start hiring some professional people. You know, let's now have a better plan. A story that most people don't know when we were getting into industrial, we actually hired two teams and we were going to get into multifamily value add and class B industrial value add. So we had two two-person teams. This was like 2015. So the market had already started yeah. moving. 
in hindsight, like we still could have been the highest bidder on everything we looked at and done well. But at the time, we were like, the only way we're going to win deals is outbidding Nightvest and S2 and whoever yeah. else was in the game. And there was like 30 bidders by that point. Right. So the market, when did you start noticing that, okay, people are kind of catching on to this, the market starting to fill up with players? It's probably, I mean, we had a pretty open run for, I'd say, four years. Yeah. And I mean, it was just, you want this one? Sure. Yeah, we'll take you it. You want this one? Yeah. And you know? did, were, did y'all just feel like you were like Willy Wonka at the Chocolate Factory? Like, why is nobody else doing this? Or were there ever days where you're like, why is nobody it's else doing this? It's hard freaking work. It is. Let's it's talk hard about, work. It's hard I mean, work. Hard work. You know, it's hard work, especially at that level. I mean, you know, we would go, I mean, we're on site. So a resident comes in and is yelling, you know, it's like. Hi. <laughs> That's the thing people forget. It's not passive. These it's are not where, this is where people live. You have to go get the rent. If rent does not come to you, you knock on that door and you say, I'll be back tomorrow. Yep. You know, I'll be back. I mean, I've gone to eviction court many times. I know how to do that, which yep. is crazy. I mean, most people that are in my position, they they've never done this stuff. You've which done is it the, all. which is not necessarily there's not a right way or wrong way to start a business. Our way it's just our way. That's yep. how we did it. That's all we know. But I, you know, I know how to go to eviction court. I know the, I know the system that way. I know how you get rent. I know offering a resident money to leave. Yep. You know, that's a, that's something that is weird. Yep. But if you have a resident that's dealing drugs, you got to get them out. Yep. You know. And so anyway, we used to we used to confront drug dealers. That was my job, which is weird because like I'm certainly not a fighter. Yeah. But. I mean, I've gone in, you know, fight or flight is real and you knock on a door and there's drug dealers in there. And I've been like, you, you, you and you get your crap and get out. Yep. And they look at me like, this guy may be crazy. Yeah. You know I mean? It's like they know, you know, but anyway. Owning a commercial building where people, it's like their business, it's where they make their income. It's where they, especially for a small business, they keep it nice. I mean, they're serving customers. And then where people, my mentor used to say, Owning places where people have to, excuse my French, shit at midnight. Yeah. When that <laughs> toilet breaks at like the office building, it's a lot different than when the toilet breaks in a yeah. multifamily. It's like an emotional thing. If you get locked out of your apartment, if you get, I mean, ACs out, uh, I'll send it to you, to you after this, but we've got some of the funniest voicemails about ladies AC out in Texas yeah. and, uh, you know, they're, it's serious. It's it real. Is. They're, yeah. they're irritated and they, you know, people also love to complain. They love to take it out on other well, people. It can be demoralizing because nobody calls their property manager to be like, y'all are awesome. Right. Thank you for doing the right thing. It is a pure, like, we're only contacting you once we've hit a level 10 emotionally and yeah. we're ready to like yeah. go to town. I love, I, I can't, I, I'm sure it's a hundred of people saying they're going to call their lawyer. I'm like, you don't have a lawyer. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, the lawyer card comes out. Often. <laughs> it's like, but we'll take care of your issue best we can. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so that's, that's what we do. You said early on, you were terrible at renovating, but there's a quote that you had in something that I read that basically y'all became the best at renovating. Yeah. Can yeah. you walk me through that process yeah. of how you went from being terrible to being like the best? Yeah. And 
and and really from the very beginning we wanted to take whatever property grade it was so if it was a we started in class d if there's such a class i don't even know and we wanted to make it d plus c minus and really it's just that's how you treat people well and then so when we bought our first kind of real deals they were class c we wanted to make them c plus right and we we realized that that people maybe it's human nature that you want one step above what you can afford. Yep. And maybe I think that's human nature. Think about like if mm. you tell your wife you you are gonna go buy a two hundred thousand dollar house, the perfect house is two thirty. I know. <laughs> if it's two million, the perfect house is three million. Yeah. If it's twenty million, the perfect you know, so I think that is just you have to battle your your own human nature there. But I think that's just reality and realize that we were able to attract a a better in quotes higher income resident if we made the apartments nicer yep and we then we just took it we we kept going and so we pushed the envelope like we were the first group that put granite countertops in class c apartments yep. and people said we are crazy and really mathematically i would disagree i'm like okay you put in the granite once and or you get to resurface it you know $150 five times every time you resurface it. And that resurface cost hits your NOI where right. you can capitalize your granite. Right. So I'm like, mathematically, I think you're wrong. And I think you can attract a better resident. And then we did. And then we just kept pushing the envelope. How nice can we make it? And so, you know, now we, we really just mimic new construction. We've got a design team, in-house design team, and they go and look at what is, what is new construction doing. And, we copy it. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's not like we're some, you know, some expert in, in all of this or, or design, but really just copying what, what the latest trends are. And so we, we now, you know, a property that's 10, 15 years old has the same experience as new construction, but at discounted rent. That's when, what we do. when you think of CapEx versus class C and then class A, is it different in class C where the majority of the dollars you want to spend on the interior, the exterior doesn't matter as much and or vice versa? Or does it so, change as you move the through the class? Yeah, I think so. And, and we did a few things that hindsight was really important in scaling the company. Okay, talk about and it. And so one of those is we wanted to get out of the class C space fast. Okay. And so there's... When did you like... That was you? probably... 2012, we we were like, let's buy 90s deals. Yep. And so it was pretty early. Yep. So three, four years. And we've bought, we've bought 80s deals since, but we're trying more and more. If you look at our last five years, we've bought just a few. Yep. And for us... And why? For us, it didn't make sense that the cap rates kept, kept coming together between a, you know, C deal, a B deal, and an A deal. Yep. And it didn't make sense. Yep. Now, we we specialize in renovations, so we don't buy too many brand new deals. We buy some, but not too many. So our sweet spot is basically the 2000s to 2015. Yep. And you know the ongoing operating cost is really hard to overcome if you find yourself in a market like this where you can't sell. Yep. So the class C space and the, the eight, 70s and 80s space is great if you go in, you fix it fast, and you flip out of it. You can make a lot of money. And we've made money doing that too. Yep. Where you get just hosed is if you can't sell it and you have to hold it for a few years because everyone underwrites 
don't want to get too too in the weeds, but get ev- in the weeds. Everyone underwrites, no matter what class it is, a replacement reserve of two hundred and fifty dollars per unit per year. Yeah. If you really underwrote. And we're guilty of this too. Some investors are like, now I'm caught when I send the next model for an 80 steel at 250 a unit on yeah. replacement reserves. But the real cost is probably, it's probably a thousand to fifteen hundred. Okay. If you put that in your numbers above the line for NOI, your cap rates are so low, it has to be perfect. So what happens then is you have a four or five million dollar capital budget. Yeah. You fix everything out of your capital budget. You keep your 250 replacement reserve because the difference between a thousand and two fifty was in your CapEx budget. Yep. And then when you've spent all your money, you got to sell. Yep. Because that that replacement reserve will not go away. Yep. It will not go away. And so, and I think we didn't know kind of those numbers. We just had that feeling that, man, we just replaced this flooring and this appliance and we've got to replace it again. But why is that different in like a B than an A? It's because the quality of what I, you're having to renovate with is lesser than? I think there's there's a couple things. I think, yeah, the starting bones are just better. Yep. There was a lot of, really a lot of junk that was built in the 80s, yep. in, especially in Texas. And there's just a different quality between something built, you know, 2000 and, and 80. So you start there and then it's renter profile. Yeah. It, it's, you know, you someone who lives in a, B plus, A minus, and better deal. Their incomes are such that they're likely, you know, have more professional jobs or not there all day. You know, it's just it's just the way it is. I mean, we'll we'll and we still own some eighties deals. The difference is our basis is such that it works. Yep. We can we can do the the thousand or really two thousand, you know, up to two thousand a year replacement reserves because our basis makes and sense. Just to be clear, what's replacement reserve to you means? It's basically just money you're going to have to spend to fix up the apartment. Yeah, and once it's they lumpy. leave, once they once they leave, even once they're there, above uh, and beyond maybe what could be billed back out of the deposit if they destroyed the carpet. There is or, no, I mean, collecting. Yeah. You know, there's there's deposit. Yeah, but 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 in excess of deposit, and then if they do damage going to collect that, your collection percentage is no. so low. I mean, yeah. it's got to be single digits. You don't, you basically don't, don't even write that. I mean, we, we, we send it to third party and they, every once in a while we get a check. Yeah. Even if they have like two dogs in there that are pissing all over the carpet. It's just part of the business. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we charge a pet deposit. Yeah. Somehow all these dogs, they have one dog and you go in there. Now they have seven, you know, or, yeah. or whatever. Okay. Back to 2012 real quick. Yeah. So 2012, it's you, Casey. It sounds like you'd hired your now today chief investment officer. You started to realize, okay, we're going to level up. We kind of have the hang of this. Yep. Kind of just walk me through like 2012 to like 2016. Like that's where I think there's an inflection point and the company starts moving. Yeah, definitely. So we, we hired some really key people. So our CFO has been with us about 10 years. Our chief investment officer has been with us 10 years. So now it's, you know, go back about that time. And the lady who runs our construction has been with us 10 plus years. I remember our CFO had had taken the company public and interviewed and and was like, man, interviewed a whole bunch of people because we knew we needed, in order to raise institutional capital, you have to have your back office tight. You just do. Okay. So there was an inflection point of, of we're going to move mentally. from high net worth. Okay. You mentally. were already thinking yeah, 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 that yeah, down yeah. the road. Okay. Yeah. 
yeah, mentally. Okay. Knowing that we need to up our game in in these areas, our construction, our chief investment officer, and our and our CFO. But CFO's particular is, a, is an interesting story. So she had just taken a, a company public, um, or was on the team that took them public, and that's a lot of work. You know, I was looking for potentially doing something different. So we we met with her, and I remember her telling us, "She's like, I, I can't. I mean." I can't work for you you guys. I'm a professional, you know? (laughs) And so she's like, you know, it sounds great what you're doing and, you know, but, but I don't know this is right for my stage of career. And so we're like, okay. So we met a bunch of other people and I remember, remember Casey and I talked and we're like, we met the right person. And so called her up and said, how much money do you need to make to start on Monday? Yeah. And so she told us and I looked at Casey and I was like, that's more than we make. (laughs) But we made it work and she's awesome and been with us ever since. So this is the time we we're building out kind of our, some key senior leaders that are better than we are. Yep. And so that's, you know, that's really important. And, and we, we made that investment and just said, you know, we, I mean, the person that, that runs our construction was building huge, huge malls. And it's, I mean, her resume is way better than our resume of yep. what, but we knew it's like, we need that. And so that was kind of the same point of us saying, let's move into more of the institutional capital world. Let's move a little bit out of the C world and let's get some professional help. And so all that worked together. And that's really was the next kind of inflection point of, of where the, the company grew. And were y'all doing deal by deal? We did deal by deal until two years ago. Okay. And well, I mean, we still do deal by deal, actually. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but we did deal by deal, like syndications or find a deal, find the money, find the deal, find the money, find the deal, find the money. Yep. And I mean, you know, and we would, we'd probably have, we try and go deeper with fewer partners. Yep. Our partner on our first deal, they're still partners today. That's awesome. Our first institutional partners are still partners today. Yep. So we try and, you know, we, we want to have deep relationships. I care. I always tell people, I was like, I care way more about the partnership than I do the document. Yeah. Which, sure. you know, it just do. And I care way more about the partnership than I do and the character of the partners than I do the, the necessary, you know, deal terms and splits. And I certainly negotiate as hard as I can for myself and the team. Yeah. But ultimately. There's nothing worse than a bad partner. I don't care. I mean, whether it's, a, you know, whether the split's at, at you know, 13% or 15% or 17%, it's like, Ultimately, if the deal works, we're all going to be happy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you start moving up the chain. And then you said there was like, after about five years, people incumbents started coming in. Yeah. What year did like the traffic of class B multifamily buyers? And it was it just like enough people watching from the sidelines going, this is a really great business. Or was there something that happened? Because it seemed it like- It got busy. Quick. It got busy quick. And so- what was interesting is we were moving up at that time. Yep. So where everyone starts is on the lower, on the C space. So the C space got really crowded. And we're trying now to go B plus A minus space. So there were our competition was more institutional capital. So we're now competing. I'm sure they're like, who are these, who are these guys beating us out on deals? And yeah. they're like, never heard of them. But the where it got just crazy. It got crazy everywhere, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy everywhere. But yeah. most of the people that, that you would think it was on the C and, and B space. Yeah. And so we were trying to stay one step 
ahead of them. When did the period start where it sounds like in the early years, and that's how it was for us in industrial, a lot of the stuff you could buy, you could pick up off market. Yeah. When did it get to where, all right, it's harder to get off market. Almost everything's now going through a process. So was that once every broker had cold called every owner in the country? Yeah, and- <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, because we did. I think we've done. We've, we've certainly done a lot of off market. Yeah. I mean, we've I bet I bet we've done 20 percent of our deals off market. Yeah, we do fewer today yeah. off market. The only reason we'd buy someone off market is they're trying to get a price that's in excess of market. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. Okay. Can you hit this? So, so, but we still, I mean, we're a lot of our off market are is if they went through a process, they picked a buyer, yep. that buyer fumbled. The seller is like, who will close? Yeah. And so we, we've got a great track record of closing and thinking we've closed 180 deals. Damn. And we've put, I, I studied for this because I knew my wife was like, do you even know your stats? And I'm like, I just read them, you know, <laughs> we've done 180 deals. We sold, uh, sold 80, have a hundred properties. So 35,000 units currently we have dropped, I think two deals. Yep. Cause of so, DD issues there during, during COVID. Yeah. Yep. And so that's it. So we, we don't retrade and we close deals. That's awesome. So that's. We're not in a ton of different markets, so we know we know the brokers and all the markets really well. They're friends, and so if if someone if a seller said I need to close by, you know, March thirty first, as we sit, you know, early early January, I cannot fumble that date. Yeah, who gets it done? Yep. And we are on, we are to this day, on that short list. Yep. And are you preferred with Fannie Freddie? Yeah. Yeah. Explain real quick what the difference in not being a preferred with them and being a preferred with them means to the buyer. Like, is it months of time? It's yeah. You get, you get more modifications, you get more attention, you get better spreads, you get better execution. And how do you get it? Just you just volume. I think, I don't know. They send me a little cube each year. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a whole stack of cubes. That's like a trophy. (laughs) Yeah. A little trophy. (laughs) (laughs) One time they didn't do it. Something I asked and, I sent the broker, the mortgage banker at the time was like, I found like seven of these cubes. And I took a picture of the seven cubes. I'm like, these clearly don't do much. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, so I don't know that it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a cool thing, but I don't know. I'm not getting like outlandish deals that others are not. Yeah. All right. I just want to talk, like maybe just walk through a typical deal real quick. And then we're just going to talk about the market today. Yeah. But you guys buy a deal. And I know it's evolved over time and it probably evolves with the vintage, but what is the team ready to do the day after you close? Is it usually like, we're going to start renovating units, we're going to do exterior? Like, how yeah. does this work for y'all? And now I'm giving, giving my playbook. Give That's them, okay. Playbook. Yeah, there you There's go. There's only 40,000 people that are going to listen to it. <laughs> no, happy to share. And so our typical deal today, in our last 20 deals, our average vintage was 2007. Yep. And so our last 20 deals, uh, it was a couple of years of acquisitions. We, we had a slower year last year, but still we bought six deals. Our slowest year since we started, really. Yeah. So our average vintage is is 2007. We have a you know closing and takeover checklist that we follow. So okay. the, we have obviously an asset manager over every deal, a regional manager over every deal, and then the the on site team and a construction manager over every deal. Yep. So that's kind of the the leadership team, and we literally have a checklist of what we're going to do day one. Yep. 
And the number one thing we do, we don't start necessarily with units. We don't start sprucing things up. We take care of existing residents. So we are professional yeses. If a resident said, hey, the manager before promised me a refrigerator, absolutely, we'll honor that. If they said, hey, my carpet's bad, let's change it out right now. We want to make it, we are scrubbing bubble gum off the sidewalks. So we are taking care of the weeds. We are doing the things that the little things that really don't matter, except if that's your home, Yep. right? If that's your home. And so we, we make it so clean, it sparkles. Yep. And that's really what we do. We take care of all residents' needs. We'll bring in extra maintenance guys and we'll send a letter and say, hey, if, if, if you have a work order, let us know what it is. And so we SWAT team that. So we spend days. So that really just sets the tone of, oh, these guys, care. they care a little. Yep. They care a little. And then after that, we, we do start renovating vacant units. But we don't, we don't really start. We want to make sure we have a, everyone's happy with us. Yep. Um, so we start with, with vacant units. Then we start with really common areas that everyone touches. Yep. So the pool, the gym, so they can use that. Because everyone, everyone understands when we come in or someone like us, the reality is rents are going up, Yep. you know, and that's just, that's, that's part of it. Yep. But we're saying, Hey, we want to be a good value, whatever price point we are, we want to be a good value and you, your rents don't go up until you're, hopefully you have 11 more months here. Uh, but some people have two and, and, you know, that's where we work with them. It's like, we haven't really done anything to justify higher rents. So that's kind of the art over science. Yep. And then we, we try to be fully finished with the common areas the leasing office, exterior paint, rename, you know, pool, gym, kind of a WeWork style space that we do in the office. Like the the grandmother's living room, we kind of take out. No one's yeah. going to sit in a leasing office. I don't know how many people have been in apartments, but they the architecture was not too dynamic. Yeah, It's like, what are these guys thinking? But anyway, so we try and, you know, make it mimic new construction, what they're doing. Um, and we try and be finished with our renovation. And I'd say it used to be month 12. It's probably now month 18. Yep. And then the interiors are ongoing forever. So if you live there and you're happy with your existing apartment, yep. we're not going to force you out. Yep. Now you're going to pay a higher higher renewal increase. But hopefully, you know, if we $50, $75, whatever it is, you think, wow, I now have a way better gym. I can cancel my gym membership that I'm paying $40 a month for or whatever. And I can basically be financially neutral because of my environment. And so well, that's what we want to do. What is happening to the renter? You had this cool page. I, I didn't print it out, but it was basically like some good stats on like the renter today in America. Yeah. Is buying homes as important to people as it used to be? Like what and are some yeah, high level yeah. highlights of that? So I think, and I, you know, we have a whole bunch of data and who knows, who knows, you know, what is right and what is not. But obviously with mortgage rates today and the home costs today, people cannot live in a home. Right. I mean, relatively speaking, the amount of money you need to to have a starter home is just way in excess of average incomes in America. And so I think we're going to become more and more a renter nation. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that's good for society, I think it's just a reality. I saw a stat, and I can't remember exactly, but I think it was like 80% of homeowners that have a mortgage, have a fixed rate mortgage that's, you know, 300 basis points less than the current mortgage you could get. So if if you're sitting and you own a home and you have a 
4% mortgage, are you going to sell that and then go buy a home with a 7%? I mean, I think you're not unless you're moving either up multiple steps or down multiple steps. Obviously, if you have a divorce or death or lost job, that's that that always happens. But so what's what with that, if there's not a whole bunch of product on the market, I don't know that home values are going to come down. Yeah. And if they don't come down and you're borrowing at six and a half, seven percent mortgage, and all of a sudden you're like, plus wow. maintenance and plus taxes plus insurance goes out we think today that really the the difference between like our upgraded rent and it's called a four hundred thousand dollar house is fifteen hundred dollars give or take and if you think about you know four hundred thousand dollar house for someone that that lives in uptown dallas that changes their lifestyle yep i mean that's not you know yeah and so go to any go to any like cool restaurant now and you look around you're like it's packed Always. Yep. Always. And so then there are people transitioning and saying, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy my life and I'm not going to worry about necessarily saving every penny so I can buy a house and I'm going to be just have a little, little bit different lifestyle. I mean, when I, so I'm 46, I got out of school, got out of college in 99, lived in a new apartment and it was very generic. Like 350 bucks a month. Yeah. Or is, yeah. It was more than that, but it wasn't, I mean, it was, it was well under a thousand. Yeah. And, you know, I only people that were in apartments at that time were really, I mean, really people that were saving for a house or they couldn't afford a house. Yeah, that is not the case today. There's that a is lot not, of people renting by oh, decision. Oh, absolutely. By choice. I mean, and and we can prove it with our incomes, and we 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 track. You know, probably the number one stat we track is how much did the average was your average income ex- in an existing apartment, and then if we fix it up, make it like new, what renter are we attracting income wise yep. and we've been able to attract i mean 30 40 percent increases six figure i mean most most in our our fully upgraded apartments are 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 making six figures and what is the number one decision if somebody's if that income level is going up and they're moving in there is it location to work is it like what's the number one reason they usually choose a one apartment complex over the other that's a good question. Is it management? Is it? I think there's. I think it's location. I think management has a little bit has some to do with it. Yeah, but I don't know if it has has a ton. I mean, we yeah. have we have made the we have made the decision not to brand our properties because we have said right or wrong. I don't know, but we have said we don't know that there's a ton of brand loyalty. Right. And so now Camden has you know a Camden property. They do a great job. Cortland does that. They they brand and they do a great job. So. Maybe we missed something, but we we decided not to do that. Do you think there's room in the market for like a four seasons of apartments where there is a brand or is it's too hard to pull off and there's too many I don't know. Yeah. I I don't know. You don't think about it. I don't think about that. I I don't think about that. Well, I'll tell you one thing you also haven't thought about, to my knowledge. You guys never developed anything. No. Was that a conscious decision? Yeah. Yeah. Y'all have done an amazing job of pretty much staying focused. So that that I am. You and Scott. Yeah. You just stayed on the train. Yeah. So the private equity firm that I worked for, real estate private equity firm, when I got laid off, great people, great company, still around today. But in 2008, yep. it was it was 2008, 2009. It's a tough time, and yep. so they were they were a more a generalist approach, yep. and so they were good at a lot of things, great at nothing. Yeah, and so kind of have that scar, you know. Yep. Now I didn't lose investor money, didn't lose my money, but lost my job which at the time was kind of had that scar. So I am a, I'm 
fanatical about we are the best in our little world and we're going to keep our little world small. Yeah. And so even as we grow cities, it's, it's, it's very methodical. It's very slow. Our renovation is pretty much the same renovation. If we change it, we're going to change it kind of globally and we're going to be the best at our little box. And so people ask me all the time, do, do, am I going to develop? Do I want to develop? Is that night vest, next thing for night vest? No, do we want to get an industrial harm? Do we want to get... Yeah, everybody and wants to. Yeah, now I wish it, I should. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe a couple of years I ago. Would have traded, we would have traded <laughs> yeah. spots along the way. But ultimately, we're, we've, we've just said, we are going to be the best multifamily operator that, that buys and renovates apartments from finish of 2000 to 2015 in the business. And that's what we do. Yep. And so if it does not fit in that box, we largely don't do it. We're not doing build to rent. We're not we don't doing do development. Yeah. Yep. So if you sent me the absolute world's greatest deal in Denver and Atlanta or Salt Lake City or Chicago market we're not in, the answer is no. I don't know a broker there. Don't want to know them. Yep. Unless we, you know, unless we decide that those are the markets we want to go to. Have you decided what markets you want to go to? Texas makes it easy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, that's yeah. another, as far as like, you know, our timing was amazing. We're born. Yeah. Where we're born is amazing. Yeah. Right. I mean, in Texas. And so started in Dallas. And I mean, we wouldn't even look in Fort Worth. So Fort Worth was our first new market, which is kind of silly. It's 30 minutes away. Yeah. But that I remember was, saying the same thing. I was like, we're going into Dallas now. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like a driver. <laughs> which I drove here. Yeah. I live in Dallas and obviously we're in Fort Worth. Made three phone calls and was here. Yep. Yeah. So Fort Worth was first. We opened a, a satellite office in Houston was our first office and really big. Sean Clancy, who's, who opened our Houston office, is still with us today. He runs our Houston office. And so we're big on having an acquisitions lead in each market that is from that market, that knows all the brokers, that knows, knows where everything is. We think that's a competitive advantage. We have the same thing in Phoenix. Yep. And Phil Lake, who opened our Phoenix office, he's still with us today. He opened it. He's doing a great job. And then Jason Dallas opened North Carolina about four years ago. Cool. And so we'll open a new office at some point, but it's not on the thought process today. And do they usually come from Dallas and move to the city or you just find somebody in those cities? They usually are. are they, like, they are all already yep. in those cities. Got it. Okay, really quick back to renovations and really just construction in general. Yeah. Construction costs are up. Yep. Labor's up. Yep. Y'all have scale. How have you thought about, I mean, everybody's dealing with it, but how, how do you how do you think about that? Is there any, I mean, I don't know if there's a yeah. magic bullet. Yeah, I mean, I don't know either. Because we, we've got some pretty good contracts and, you know, national contracts. Most of our competitors do the same. Yeah with kind of the, the, the vendors. And so we, we try and keep cost best we can say, yeah. Hey, we're going to make it up in volume, keep cost, you know, do you in import line. from China? We do not. Why? It just, it, it like just, I'm sure you've been asked that. Oh, right million now. times. So we've got to buy, buy or rent a warehouse. Then we've got to have someone oversee the, the inventory. Then there's some leakage. Then, you know, it, it's just, I don't know. I feel like, you know, our, our vendors, we can negotiate pricing and they can keep it yep. in their warehouse. We've got a little kit and it comes in, everything we buy. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So we know what we're going to buy, drop it in there. So they're probably making, they're certainly making a spread. I want them to. Yeah. So could we make that spread and start a new division? Probably. Yeah. But 
focus. Yeah. I don't know. In like perspective, 35,000 units, how many units are you renovating a year? 10% of those? 20%? No, not 20%. You know, and it's it's hard to say because on the the first two years, it's it's a lot more. Yeah. And, and then it and then it drops off. But probably every property is is one a month. Yeah. Um, at a minimum. So right there, you know, that's on projects we've owned, even if we've owned them, we have some projects we've owned 10 years. We're still renovating. You know, we take the worst unit that had a bunch of dogs or kids or, you know, just needs. And we take the worst unit and we renovate it to the best. And that's all we do. And we just keep stacking them on top to making the property better. But I bet we're, we're renovating, I mean, thousands of units each yeah. year. That's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, that's a full-time. It's a lot. We have... That's another thing we do differently. So we have an exterior construction manager okay. and we have interior only construction managers. Okay. And we have about 20 of them. They're in certain markets. They're in all their own markets. They're on corporate payroll. And really all they do is they quality control and make sure we have consistent product, make sure we're keeping cost in line best we can. And they're overseeing the renovation, the interior renovation. And that's all they do. We used to you know, have a manager oversee it or have the regional oversee it or have an asset manager. And we finally were like, you don't get the same quality and consistent quality if you don't have someone owning that job. And these are professionals. I mean, I think six figure, so hopefully I don't have like 8,000 resumes coming, but it's a hard job. And so that's, that's how we keep our renovations on the interior side, really, really high quality. Is there anything from market to market or do the same renovations basically work no matter what market you're in? Or is there like they a work. different style in Phoenix than there is? There's not. A, there may be, but we have not that it, we have not gone to that level. Are there any amenities that don't matter that people build out or is it? Yeah. So Scott Everett. G- gym yeah. So Scott Everett's a good friend of mine. We, yeah. we, we talk all the time and text and complain and, yeah. you know, but anyway, he's a good friend <laughs> and he sent me one this week of a, and hopefully he's not offended, but if he is, I'm sorry, but of a uh, outdoor fitness area. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're, we've put in some outdoor fitness areas and they have just the saddest little piece of equipment. And, yeah. I mean, no one ever uses that. Looks like you know? a jail yard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we've, we've, we've tried, you know, I don't think, I don't think people care about that or, or use that. Yeah. Um, I think dog park, I think the gyms are big, dog parks are big after that. You know, the pool's big. I don't know. There's a lot more pets today. Yeah. Everyone has a dog. It's crazy. Not as many kids, more dogs. Yeah. All right. What's going on in the market? Like, walk us kind of through your 2022 to today, like your perspective on things. Yeah. So the market got hot. Real hot. Real hot. I wish that, you know, it's one of those things I went through with, with uh, our Chief Investment Officer yesterday, Nathan, and uh, we were talking about a deal we underwrote and we bought in 2020, early 2022. Okay. And, and we were basically making fun of ourselves yeah. for some of the assumptions. Yeah. So we had like a, I mean, just a crazy rental growth in years one and two. Yeah. And we didn't hit it. And it was impossible to hit and should have known. But if you didn't put that in, you didn't get the deal. Yeah. And so- Everyone got a little carried away. So deals that were bought, I would say, mid-21 to mid-22 yep. are, are struggling. Yep. And the math is Purely against you. Purely because of interest rates or because of rent growth so, decline as well? So 
I, I did some some math that scared it even scared me when I did it and yeah. do this all day. Um, yeah. So if you bought a three and a half cap, let's just say, and that's where that was market. I mean, cap rates got sub three in Dallas. God. Luckily, we got beat out a lot, yeah. but we won some too. Yeah. I don't think we won any in Dallas at that, but we won some low cap rates. But so if you bought a three and a half cap, let's say a best case scenario, you've gotten your yield on cost or your your new cap rate to a four and a half. Yeah. Okay. And so you get that through renovations and you get increased rents. You're getting expense pressure. Maybe you go uninsured or you have some magical insurance that I have not found yet. But let's pretend you get to a four and a half percent yield on cost. Your borrowing rate, so for five and a half, a little less, but let's say five and a half plus three percent spread. So you're borrowing at eight and a half. Okay. Now people are like, why well, have a cap? Okay, great. Your cap is running out every day. And if you bought something in mid 21, you and you bought a three-year cap, which a lot of people bought a two-year cap. Let's just pretend you were really conservative. You bought a three-year cap. Well, that cap's coming due. The math on an $85 million deal, which is kind of our probably average size deal. Yeah. And you did two-thirds debt, one-third equity, which is about normal-ish. Yeah. You burn $1 million annually in the current rate environment. And you either burn it if you're uncapped or you burn it by buying a cap because a cap is really just prepaid interest. Yep. And that's just the math. So if you want to know how people are struggling, if they have floating rate debt, how many deals did they buy between mid-21 and mid-22? Yep. You multiply the number of deals by $1 million and that is the daunting math. And so if you bought 10 deals, you $10 million is going to have to come from somewhere. It either comes from you personally, or it comes from your investors, or you are tossing keys. Okay. We're going to get into that really quick. The, the one thing I was going to say, so 2020, is it just because most people that bought in 2020 were able to get their renovations and get to permanent financing mm. quick enough, or why? Uh, 2020 has some, has some struggles, too. Yeah. Late, late tw- I mean, the, the- But the cap rates had not dropped as low. Yeah. They haven't dropped as low. So- the bad ones are the the or just mathematically bad yep. are the mid 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 twenty one to mid twenty two. So okay, so everybody's facing kind of this tidal wave. If you had floating rate debt, S- somebody wrote on Twitter. They they said ask them why they use life co debt and basically permanent financing on value add deals. Well, I would argue that some of our deals, you know, you don't necessarily qualify as value add if it's built in two thousand. Okay five or 2010, That's we are plus. adding value, yeah. but it's not like it's a distress deal. Yeah. yeah. Um, gotcha. And really the, the reason why we do a, and we get this question a lot, why we, do, we have a 50, 50 mix of fixed and floating. Yep. Most of our high net worth investors want fixed. Most of our institutional investors want floating. And okay, go on that a little bit so, because some of this, it's easy to point the finger at y'all or anybody oh, yeah. that bought. But the other part is the institutions are also calling, saying we got to deploy capital into this asset class. Yeah, they're pushing you as hard as you're finding deals. Yeah, that's how institutions yeah. work. They need allocations. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, and uh, I mean it's no different from the development. Everyone's d- developing so much. I mean, it, you get called in institutions like I mean we we had many deals where our institutional LPs said, "Hey, we have this X Y Z deal we just toured. We'd love to do it." Yep. Can you guys, can we do it together? Yeah. Well, sure. 
That's you know? different than high net worth money. Right. A lot different. R- a lot different. You got to go get that. You got to go. And now you got to get mean, Right now, the institutions are in love them, but they're all waiting for this magical day to start. Yeah. And we can get to that here. We can go back to the math. But, no, but keep going. Yeah. So they're waiting for this, this magical day to start deploying capital. So that's why I think, I think on the institutional grade assets, I don't think the sky is going to completely fall. I don't think because eventually they'll convince themselves that the magical day is here. There's yeah. either there's 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 clarity from the from the Fed. What do they think uh, the magical day actually looks when like? When there's clarity from the Fed, and do they not feel like we have that yet? I haven't seen, and obviously my world is pretty small, yeah. right? But I have I talked to enough institutional capital that. If you extrapolate it out, I have a feeling. I don't think anyone wants to look stupid. Right. I would say that that, that starts <laughs> as a young as a young child. We're told not to look stupid. Okay. Real quick then, on the deals that institutions are holding that were 21, 22 vintage, are they going to make the capital calls to keep these? Or how are they deciding what they're going to stay in and what they're going to get so out of? So that is the magic question. Okay. That's the magic question. And is yeah. 2024 going to be the day of reckoning where we find that answer? I think 2024 is going to be really bad. Let's talk about it. So <laughs> here we go. Here we- this is someone who's buying a deal next week. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Bought a deal last month. Yep. You know, we we have always said we're going to buy and sell in both up and down markets. Yep. The problem with that statement I learned, that means you hit you hit the peak and you hit the bottom. I don't know if today's the bottom. I don't know if the next deal is or 10 deals from now, but we will hit it. Yep. But unfortunately, the opposite is also true. We hit the top. Yep. And so that's just that's just reality. So I think this, you know, again, $85 million deal, two-thirds debt, one-third equity. You're at a four and a half yield on cost, borrowing at eight and a half. That's just the math. Yeah. So if your deal is half that size, it's pretty linear. If it's a $40 million deal or 42 and a half, it's 500000 Yeah. It's all about whether the LPs believe, are they throwing good money after bad? Yeah. And the numbers that I said is if operations are really good. So we've got 100 properties. Our average occupancy, I think, is 93.6 today. We have only two properties that are under 90%, none that are, and they're like 89 and a half. So we're, we're actually seeing positive rent growth. So our, our operations are like, operations team is hard to fault. So, and that's the math we're facing. It's a capital markets issue. Well, it is, but if you're a bad operator, yep. and there are a lot of, there are a lot of terrible operators. Yep. There's just, I mean, it, it really makes me angry just to see, you know, it's like taking advantage of people that, that and I don't know if they know they're bad, yeah. but it's like, man, you're terrible at, you're terrible at operations, you're terrible at renovations, yep. you know. That's where people live. Yeah. And so, but the math's even worse, if you, like these groups that got really carried away, they were doing higher leverage and they were doing preferred equity. And so if you do, I did, and I did the math, which is scary. If you do 80% leverage and your eight and a half percent debt turns to 10, your co- cost of overall debt, pref, and then, and then uh, senior, you burn $3 million every deal, every year. And are banks like, sorry, good luck or any of them? I don't, because that's how we were able to buy things at 10, 15, 20, 25, 30,000 a unit Yeah, is because the banks took it over and the banks realized they're terrible at operating. Yeah, they don't want to buy. So 
If I'm a bank, I don't want it. Back to your capital call issue. So, I mean, 2024 is just going to see. So why is it going to be bad? Like we're starting. Because, because if you bought a deal in 21, your three-year cap is coming up. Yep. And you need that million dollars to either buy a new cap or go uncapped and fund it out of pocket every month. And so then what you, you have to do is you have to say, LPs, here's the plan, you know? And we're doing it right now. We're literally doing it right now. Not doing as many, but it's like, here are the current operations. Here's how we got here. Here's our plan to get out. But right now we have a need. And so this is where the relationship business matters. Yep. Did you do, do the little things right every day, treating investors right, treating employees right? Did you do that? Yep. Do you have the relationships? And so if, if, if you had raised money, and I call it seminar money, which is probably insulting to people, but whatever. Yep. And you don't really know the people and you, you have a steak dinner and you, you raise, you know, go back to them. Go back to them and try and raise money. Yep. I don't think they'll fund it. I agree. And uh, so then you're faced with how much, how many deals have you personally sold as a GP and how much are you willing personally to prop the deal up? Yep. And it's a, an ability issue and it's, there's a, that ability and desire and what's the right mix? I don't know. And if you can't, then the lenders have to work with you or it's over. It's as simple as that. And so, I don't know how many deals were bought in that window. I mean, you can, and you can extend the window too. If you're a bad operator, it's really late 2020 to, to mid, mid 2022. Are you starting to see people finally like mental fatigue is like, all right, it's time to start moving this. Like yeah. the, the optimism's over. Is it, are they being forced to bring them to market? Is it more of, yeah. we, we held on I as mean, long we've as we gotten could? calls. I'm not going to name names, yeah. but we've gotten probably 20 calls on seeing if we could replace, replace a GP. Yeah. And, uh, looked at the, you know, we're doing it on a couple right now on three. It has to be in our box. It's kind of like 2000s or newer, 2015. So it's not in our box. It's a no, but we looked at a package of, I don't know, eight or 10 deals. And I was like, it, there's, you know, we don't walk on water, yeah. you know I mean? We don't, I, you are a night path. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't save the, this deal is, is toast and you know, I don't know. So what's going to happen? You're just going to wait and in that, are you able to go, look, here's the valuation we would do it. And they're like, well, well we're going to go search for a, somebody that might take it at a higher valuation. Yeah, maybe. But the problem is when you hear the headlines of, Hey, values are down 25%. That's a whole equity wipeout. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, put that in perspective. That's not just, Oh, you know, my hundred grand went to, you know, to 75, it's your hundred grand went to zero. Well, then the death spiral starts because then you start having terrible management at right. site, tenants start leaving, right. you start right. back and filling them with tenants that shouldn't be there. And then it gets worse and worse. That's exactly and worse. right. And so that's, I mean, that's a great point. And that's exactly right. What happens is if an operator doesn't have the money and the LP group is not going to fund it, what they'll do for temporarily is they'll fill it up with whoever has a heartbeat. That's a death spiral. As soon as you, as soon as you put a criminal element in a deal, yeah. you're done. Yeah. It's done. It's going to 50% occupancy. 
if talk you don't about root that real quick. You go put you go let a criminal or somebody with a bad reputation enter what's already a solid community. The community yeah. disintegrates pretty quickly. Fast in the C in the C space. You yeah. know, I mean, if you have a property in Uptown and you put a couple people that selling weed, you're fine. Yeah. But if you're in, you know, challenging areas yep. and the criminal element hangs out with the criminal element and they know they don't screen at XYZ property, it just, it's a spiral. You get more in and then the people you want, and, and reality is there's more good people than bad everywhere. Yep. But man, when you put those, when you put the people in, I'm putting bad in quotations as criminal element. Yeah. It, good people scatter. Okay, so 2024 is going to be bad. You're closing on a deal in two weeks. Your strategy is to buy in up and down markets. But like, do you have a differentiated strategy for this year? It's like, send us all your deals. We're going to underwrite them. No, we had lunch like, I don't know, a few months ago. And you basically, to some degree, said like, we're just going to buy stuff that traded whenever for 20 to 30% cheaper than it. Right. So we're buying. That's their game plan. We're buying a nice deal in, in, in McKinney right now. We're closing in a couple of weeks. Okay. And we're buying, our base is a hundred thousand a door less than the neighboring property that traded in that bad time we were talking about. Yep. And we have, I think 200 square foot size units are larger and we're like five years newer. And I'm a, you know, I mean, I don't want to overcomplicate it. Sure, we ran all the numbers and we did all the diligence and we walked all the units and all that, but I like that trade. It's a site you can't necessarily replicate. Big unit, 1,200, I think it's 1,200 average unit size, which we love in suburban locations. So it's a suburban A location. Love that. Mortgage rates are high. So we're buying that kind of a mid fives cap. And, you know, should it be a six? I don't know. Will it be a six? I don't know. But I know it's pretty good relative value. And so we have a plan. We can go in and make a subset of the units like new and do our kind of night best plan and feel like it'll be a a great deal. Are you starting to see people leave the multifamily industry? They're going to. Yeah. That's yeah. ultimately it's a good you hate I to mean, see it, but it's it's healthy long yeah. term. I mean I, I and I listened to the podcast that at least aired yesterday. Yeah. With with Herb, which was great. But he was like, it's not a uh it's nothing like it was. Yeah. And it's not if you're under levered with fixed rate debt. It's not. It's fine. So our 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 stress is only on the deals that have floating rate debt. Yeah. So the the fifty percent that we have fixed rate debt on, no stress, none. Well, that change how you think about capitalized deals going forward. It's like we'll still do floating in the future. I think I think we'll stick to what we're doing. And and yeah. now you know like we closed a, a floating rate deal last month in charlotte and we bought a five-year interest rate cap yeah so i don't know that's kind of a hybrid people you know people are like that's the worst buy ever i don't like maybe it's the worst buy ever i don't know yeah um because that cap rate can drop drop in value maybe it was but how much do you value not worrying more and more on the industrial side we've kind of been given guidance that like there's a flood of deals starting to come to market first six months, not necessarily distress people. Mm-hmm. I just think there was very little transaction across the board, no matter what. Is that what you're hearing that like, all right, January one hit the next six months, it's going to be deal time. Or is that did in multi, did that start happening in so, 2023? No, it, it was slow. It was very slow. Yeah. We, I mean, it, we bought six deals, which was our slowest year since 2011, I think. So in over a decade. Yeah. 
And I think one of those was like a trickle over from 2020. You know, so it's one of those a trickle over of 2022 and one closed, you know, the end of 2023. Yep. So if you think about it, I mean, it's, well, you know, we'll go, you know, in five years, we'll look back and we'll say, oh, that was a slower year. It was really pretty slow um, on the acquisition side. And the only groups we bought from, I'm trying to think, we bought from, you know, name brand groups, the yep. large institutional sellers that have less emotion. Yep. Time to sell. Yep. I bought, yep. All right. What is equity saying? Like you talk to equity all the time, or I know the institutional equity is kind of waiting for the magic day. But are they are they starting to allocate to new funds or high net worth, or is everybody still kind of shaky? Yeah, I don't know. I, I could answer that question better in a, in a few weeks. Okay. So, so we raised a we raised our first fund two years ago, and we went we just went to kind of high net worth friends and family. We didn't know how much we'd raise. We'd never done a fund. We'd always kind of done deal by deal. So even if we go before that fund, even if we raise money from a large institution, they put 80% of money, we would raise the 20. Yep. And so I'd obviously put money in as well. But we would, you know, raise the 20. And we were really kind of like, man, I feel like I've just raised money all day. So what if we put all these people, and then people were complaining they weren't seeing deals, which is crazy. They're like, in, in 20, 2021, they're like, hey, you didn't, you didn't show me this deal. You know, uh-huh. I want, you told me you'd show them all to me. I'm like, well, it's hard. I, I meant, I meant to, but yeah. you know, you asked seven questions. This guy asked five, yeah. you know, <laughs> somewhat joking. Yeah. No, I hear you. <laughs> and so we're like, let's put all these people together, all kind of our, our friends and family. We didn't know how much money we raised. We raised $200 million. Yep. And so we used that as an, as an LP fund, we kind of used it to, we, we can take lead positions. We could go, you know, then it could be a minority position. We could partner with a large institution and it worked out great. We've almost done with that fund. Okay. And we are kicking off raising, we've kind of been in the market, but we're going to officially kick it off to existing fund one investors literally today. Okay. And was working on that yesterday. It'll be interesting to see what people's, perspective is. Yep. My gut says that a lot of people will, I think most people understand that fund two in this environment has about a hundred percent probability of outperforming fund one. Yeah. It just, I mean, it just will. Yeah. But I think people are scared of the unknown. And so I, part of me thinks that the 200 million of investors say that turns into a hundred million, maybe 150. And then we're out raising kind of our first larger scale, you know, called institutional type fund. So we'll see. Is it illegal to say on a podcast, I'm in if you'll have me? <laughs> I assure you, you're on the list. All right, sweet. I like that. I think, I think like you said, 2020. The timing is amazing. It's good timing. And we're going to have first close mid-year. And then so we'll, we'll get assuming, you know, commitments kind of, kind of, in the next three months, then we can get a line of credit. And so we can start, we can start buying Moving. deals and it, it should be perfect timing. And yeah. debt's ready to move the capital, like on the debt well, side. Well, if you do fixed rate debt today, you can get low to mid fives on a five-year fixed rate deal. Yep. The problem isn't the, you know, five, seven and 10-year treasury. The problem is SOFR, yep. which is the, you know, with the Fed, Fed adjust. Yep. So, and I think they'll probably start coming down, probably won't come down as fast as everyone wants, me included, but. All right, a couple more questions. Technology. 
there really hasn't been, I mean, there's great operating technology, property management software, yeah. investor man, but it like, is, is there anything on the horizon? Maybe it's with AI or something where you see a chunk of the OpEx, actually a meaningful chunk being taken out because yeah. of technology. I mean, we deal, we talk about this so all much, the time. all the time. I mean, it is a dinosaur industry. Well, and, and, you, just, and you, but you also see a lot of these prop tech companies. One, most of them are started by people that weren't real estate to begin with. Yeah. So they think they're solving this problem that either A, didn't exist or B, just isn't well, going to work. Don't make me have to buy your product and then hire three people to, to oversee it, it to then save the equivalent cost of, Three people That's a great that I just way hired, to put it. and so yeah, I mean, I think technology will will certainly change the way we do things, but you're still dealing with people's homes, right? And so, you know, are we going to do are we you know online leasing trash that much and less. self guided tours? Yeah. So that's something that you know, can you do an an app that lets you an apartment and you do a self guided tour? Yeah, I guess. Is that but actually a good thing? I don't know. Does it work better? We do it. You know, COVID made it stuff like that more acceptable. We do it some. Yeah. Does it save us money? I don't know. You know, we we have we have centralized some functions. So like the assistant manager function, you know, we we've got that now in corporate and they can cover three or four properties. Yeah. Stuff like that. But like AI, I mean, I'm sure there's someone really smart that's got some solution, but I don't know how you overcome my toilet doesn't flush yep. and I'd really like it to. Yeah. And a human has to fix that. Yeah. The trash is, you know, stinky apartments don't lease. Yep. So how does the AI know it stinks in there? Yep. All they're going to know is it didn't lease and lower the price. I mean, I, it's, I, I don't know. And I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, stuck in 1985 either. No. But at the end of the day, you got to work. For sure. You got to get to work. Yep. You got to do hard work every day, the same every day. All right. You've been in 55,000 units since, I guess now going on 15 years. Is Do you have any ideas for the industry or just like anything that you think about often that's not happening across any part of the industry? Just something that's like, this is my thought, or I wish we did this, or this would make it better, or is it you're, you you way exceeded my my brain power? Okay, so I mean that's in your little box. I mean, that just, I mean industry wide. I, I mean, think I it's actually a good answer because there isn't a lot of magic bullets. <laughs> yeah, is I guess my point. Yeah, and I think people that I don't know. It's just I I don't know. I, honest answers have not thought about you know what can be done. I think we everyone knows we have a housing shortage. Yeah. So some math. It is, you know, say Dallas and Fort Worth and DFW and Houston, let's say they've added 100,000 people, probably more, but let's say 100,000 annually. Poor man's math says for every, you know, 100,000 people, both in, in major cities, homeownership rates probably 50%, two people on average in an apartment. So 100,000, 50,000 are renters divided by two, 25,000 units. So the the math is on our side, you know, long term. Long term. Now we also have amazing developers here that have built more than that twenty five thousand twenty five thousand units, and these are all issues. Don't send me an email. Yeah. We actually added one hundred thirty two thousand people. <laughs> I don't care. Um, <laughs> point is, we're adding people. Yeah, we're building more than we're adding. Yep. Um, today, now I think. There's, Talk about the supply glut yeah, that could so happen through the next three years. Yeah, so we built more, just like acquisitions got crazy, 
development got crazy. And so 2021, 2022, you could put a development deal if you could fog a mirror. That's not quite true, but you could also probably raise money if you could fog a mirror too. Yeah. So insulting us all together. Yeah. And so there was a lot of supply. And so that's why rents are down. It's just simple math is we built a lot of apartments, even though we're adding people that everyone knows, we built more than we added people. That stopped. That's going to stop because 2023 and 2024, it's going to be really hard to make the, the math work. And every developer I talked to, if they normally did 10 deals, they're doing three. They normally do five deals, they're doing two. They normally do two deals or doing zero. And so that's going to work itself out. I personally don't think the population migration trends are going to change in, you know, Texas. And we're in, we're in majors in Texas, we're in Phoenix, and we're North Carolina and Florida. I think those are going to continue to see population trends. I think the big wild card that will really change is the homeownership rate in America is 66%. In the current mortgage world, the current inflation world, is it likely to be 65 or 67%? I think 65. So every, you know, when there's 340 million people in America, so every percentage is 34, right? Or 3.4. Divide that by two, because there's two people in each apartment. So that's 1.7 million rental units needed. if that homeownership rate drops down. So it goes back to, to I think the original question is what can be done? I think we need to figure out how to build some affordable housing and no one has a solution. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know how you do that without doing a public-private partnership. And then we saw what happened with the PFCs. And I'm not going to get into it. We've never done one, but it just, it got abused. Yeah. It got abused. And so I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I just, I think, I think it's great for, you know, for like night best, we're heads down. We do one thing, we do it really, really well. And we're going to keep doing that one thing. And I think the, the bigger demographic trends are in our favor. Yeah. Even if today looks like, holy smokes, I got a million dollars of burn on this one deal. That may be true. Yeah. But if you look, look up, it, I think it's, it's bright. We're going to end on that note. Okay. David. Thanks. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.